You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. This week, we are going to be talking about leadership development through assessments uh, and tools that are available for families to utilize or um, have assist them. And we've concentrated in a couple of podcasts recently around the leadership challenge. And given the fact that there is issues around staff retention, there are issues around development, um, particularly in uh, family field if there are limited number of family members to choose from it can be difficult to appreciate who can step up into those leadership roles so today I'm delighted to be joined by Natalie McVeigh who is a faculty member at the Family Firm Institute before we get into the interview perhaps you could give us a little bit of information about who you are how you came to be doing what you're doing now Sure, Russ. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I find that most people come into this work as their second or third career. Um, and I'd say this was my second career. I started out as a, as a compliance uh, and ethics officer, mostly the ethics side and not compliance, because it was important to me to understand why we were making choices and, and not just what is legal or what is right. And then I, I met a wonderful woman who I worked with uh, for about eight years, who, who was my mentor in her own family firm. And she hired me uh, for that same unique background, the way that I thought about things, not just as they are, uh, but why we're doing it and, and how things could be. Um, and I helped at first doing you know, course design. And then I started getting really into assessments. I'd say that, um, that assessments were something this firm had that was interesting and that was very unique. Some, some family advising firms use assessments and some don't. And to me, assessments just get you uh, where you want to go quicker. So I, I was hired for one project and, and I didn't leave. We worked together for about eight years. Um, and then I've since transitioned. Fantastic. And it's particularly leadership development that you're involved in, isn't it? It is, yes. Fantastic. And I guess the opening question then is how do you start to cultivate or understand the leadership capabilities that an individual might have? And the simplest way for me is to actually understand their starting point. Um, there are many theories of leaders, uh, leadership. And in family business, I think about a personal leadership. Uh, almost everyone who is a part of a family business uh, gets to show up in a leadership position. You might be a leader in your sibling group. Uh, you might be a leader who models to the next generation of your family collaboration. That could be a non-business owning spouse who can do that modeling. You might model collaboration. Yes, when we think of leadership in family businesses, we often think of, of succession. You know, who's going to be the successor of the family's anchor asset? But, but there's so many ways to be involved in a family business that I think of it as personal leadership. And knowing where your starting point is really helps map a course for where you want to go. At the end of the day, if we don't know where we want to go, we don't know where to start. I, I tend to think about things um, as, as a pathway. And so if somebody has decided 
um, that they want to take the leadership um, pathway, where would be their best starting point? Because it, there are people out there who will believe they make fantastic leaders and, yeah. and they may or may not be right. And there are people out there who might think I won't be a good leader. And again, they may or may not be right. So what would you suggest to them as their starting point? Um, so I usually run some assessments to show, to understand the behaviors of what people are doing, but then also a predictive assessment to understand runway. There are certain things that some of us just won't be good at that doesn't preclude us from being a leader. So for example, um, I'm not very detail oriented. I know that now from assessments. Um, so I work really hard, but I have workarounds. I have people and ways to make sure my detail orientation is helpful. So you, you wanna know what the people's runway is, uh, what they can do. And there are several predictive assessments that can be used in the industry to do that. And the second piece I look at is motivators. What actually interests you and what are your passions? Uh, because even if you could be a great leader making, quote unquote, let's say it's widgets, you could be a great leader making widgets. If that's not what excites you, if you have more of a creative lens that you can't bring into that working environment, you also won't succeed as a leader. Um, so one, it's competence and capabilities. And two, it's passions and motivators. And, and hopefully those two can come together um, in interesting ways so that these leaders can stay. And, and a third part that isn't about the individual per se is about the culture of that organization. Uh, culture is, is one of the unique things that are an advantage to family firms. And they have unique cultures that have to, to be understood so that the leaders in those family businesses can continue to perpetuate that culture and, and to not erode that culture. So those are the ways that I think about it for fit for leaders. Okay, and if, so you mentioned the example of succession. If we just pick on that for a second. With regards to somebody who might be looking at being a successor to the, the business current business leader, but they don't necessarily possess what you would call natural leadership skills. Is, is leadership something that can be taught or is it just adapting people's behavior to take advantage of their strengths? It's a good question. Um, you know, when I think of, of skills, I use the word acumen. And why I use the word acumen is it's, it's from a loop, root word called acure, which means to sharpen. And I think that's true uh, even for the best leaders. When you use a blade, you know, a kitchen blade, uh, regular usage dulls that blade. And, and so you need to sharpen it. And the same is true for for uh, leaders who might not look like they've developed the skills that you want them to yet. It, it's sharpening that blade so that it, it, it can do the job it's supposed to do. So in a lot of times when we're talking about family businesses, we're talking about connecting with a team, building trust, uh, facilitating that culture. And, and to normalize that and to understand where people start, uh, of course it can be learned. Um, and so 50% of our genes are called template genes. They don't change. 50% of our genes are transcription genes, and they change for all kinds of reasons. So that battle of nature and nurture, it's both, right? And so the way we have changes is neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, and neuropruning. Uh, breaking that into its simplest components means uh, doing new skills and practicing them and leaving some of those skills that didn't work for us 
behind. So let's say we say that next generation person is not their mother or father. Well, of course they aren't. And depending on the direction of the company, they don't need to be their mother or father. In fact, sometimes the next generation, you want complementary skills and not the exact same skills uh, for that future trajectory. And the other piece is, in those skills that we would like these young people to have, and they might also like to have, how do we behaviorally practice that? So they become habits, so they become second nature. Brilliant. And looking at it the from, from the other um, side, if somebody's already in a leadership position, and particularly again in a family business, if they're seen as the, the head of the family business, it can sometimes be really difficult to admit to shortcomings what would you say to to people who are perhaps in that leadership position thinking, am I making the best of my abilities? What more can I be doing? How should they approach this? I guess I'd reframe it to not be shortcomings. In most cases, when I work with a client, uh, they're coming because they're in a transition of some sort, whether that transition is they're in a growth for their business, uh, they're thinking of transitioning to the next generation, so their role would be as a mentor, whether they have acquired a new company, they're, they're already in a state of change. And so I acknowledge the success that that client has had for those many years. X set of behaviors and capabilities has made you extraordinarily successful. And now you're in a change. And we want to understand what will help you in this phase. And, and we want to know that objectively. And sometimes we'll do a 360 assessment so that we hear from the leadership. We can hear from their peers. Um, we can hear from family members. It's Occasionally you can run this assessment uh, through vendors to just really say what's needed now. So it's not so much that people aren't measuring up. And again, you can go back to that, that acumen phrase. It's that sharpening is a part of the process. Yeah. And as we've mentioned at the outset, um, and we're going to look at a number of these assessments that you currently use in your leadership development. But before we get into the specifics, could you just give us some more information on why you use tools and what are the benefits of doing so? Absolutely. Um, I think data tells a story. Um, when you're looking at your uh, P&L, there's a story there. When you're looking at a lot of metrics that you use for strategy and day-to-day -day management, it's telling a story. And that story is what's happening and what could happen. And so data for assessments can tell that individual story. Depending on the assessment, like a 360 or some cultural assessments, it can tell the story of the organization. So first off, it's a story that we can learn information from. And secondly, it's subjective. In, in family firms, I know you've talked to several people about uh, Bowen theory and some of the other aspects of systems theory that impact families. They're anxious systems. They're anxious systems for a lot of reasons. But when you can, can bring out fact and you can bring up objectivity, it, it's helpful to not make meaning of something. So, for example, if a leader has a, an authoritative leadership style that's maybe making that successor feel poorly about themselves, right? They think it's about them. They think mom or dad is controlling me. We can show them with data, your mom or dad is, is not laying awake at night trying to make you miserable. This is how he or she shows up all the time. It's, it's quite, pers uh, quite objective and it's not personal. Fantastic. And one of the um, perhaps misconceptions to get out of the way 
um, as well at early doors. And this is something that if anyone ever says to me, we're going to do an assessment, I always think test. <laughs> and it's, I think it's quite important to appreciate that they, there's no right or wrong. Uh, am I right in thinking that? Absolutely. You know, I can't tell you how many clients I've heard say, I don't want to fail. And, and the short answer <laughs> is you, you can't fail. Yeah. Um, and I really do like to focus on that complementary skills because the skill sets that we all have, one, skills are learned so we could change those if it's needed. But two, the reason they haven't been in the company is probably because you haven't been in the company. So it's just trying to find out where everyone is to really leverage the strengths that exist. And I like thinking of creating third alternatives. You and your founder, your, you second generation, let's say, and that first generation founding generation, if you sit down and assess everyone's strengths and, and their capacity to, to do leadership and you got all of those people in the room and, and gave equal voice to all of that information, what could happen compared to what was happening by just one generation is, is just impressive. Mm. And I'm guessing as well, we, we might get into some examples of where this has been the case. Using an assessment tool that's consistent for everybody can help to diffuse some of the situations. You mentioned their parents lying awake at night, you know, plotting how they can make their children's lives a misery, not, not being a reality hopefully not being a reality anyway. Um, I haven't seen it to be a reality yet. <laughs> and the, the use of these assessments can help to diffuse some of the tensions. Is that right? It does because it normalizes that behavior. Um, so I'll, I'll pick on myself a little bit and I'll describe one example of, of what our assessments have. So there's a fundamental interpersonal relationships orientation behavior. It's called the FIRO B. It's a long name, uh, but it really talks about how people either express or want inclusion, control, or affection in their life. So I'll, I'll pick on my family for inclusion. I have high expressed. It's kind of how you and I met. Russ, you're like, you want to do this podcast? And I said, yes. And then very similar to my family, uh, I had to change the date. Something came up. I'm always willing to do these things because I'm I, I express interest in that. I don't necessarily want to. Um, not because I don't like you or like the podcast, but I don't have a lot of desire for inclusion. So in my sister and I, and she knows this, so this is not uh, something she'd be ashamed of me telling, my sister has high wants for inclusion. I have low wants for inclusion, but I express inclusion all the time. She says, you want to get coffee? I say yes. Um, but she hardly asks because her, her expressed is low. It's very hard for her to ask. And then I don't show up for coffee. Not, not because it's not in my diary, but I don't follow up to find out a date for that. And my sister and I have spent years where my sister's been really hurt by me not making further plans because it's harder for her to ask more. And I didn't know because I don't have that same desire. I don't have that same need. And so it, it one, explains the behavior that happens objectively, but two, it, it normalizes, and it's not personal. My sister's name's Nicole. Nicole gets that she's not the only one I'm not following up on. It's not that I'm not following up because I don't care about her. The second part of that, though, is it's not just saying that we took our assessments and I can say, well, I just have low, low desires for inclusion, so I don't need to follow up with you. I now know that it hurts her. So I have to do my personal work 
if I don't want to hurt my sister. So you could probably ask her now and she would tell you after being assessed eight years ago, I show up a lot more or I tell her clearly uh, why I can't. So it's a bilateral responsibility. It's first describing what's happening. So it's not random, uh, letting you know that it's not personal. And two, you get to work together in your relationships and family members to say, if my behavior is impacting my family members, either positively or negatively, what, what can I do about that? And the same thing with the leadership team, same thing. What, what can I do about those behaviors to, to change them? Yeah, and using, if you're comfortable doing so, using the, the example of you and your sister, it's not just understanding the um, character traits or, as you say, the inclusion, control, affection side of things. It's, it's what you then do with that information that perhaps is um, the important bit. Because, like you say, data tells the story, but it, if you'd have just taken the assessments and gone, okay, fine, and then carried on, it, it may have been that their tensions between you and your sister could have escalated or your relationship would have suffered as a result. Absolutely. And so the way that, that I find a best practice to do this is, is first find out what assessments would be useful. And there are many different types. There's attitudinal there's behavioral, there's personality, and there's predictive. There are probably also many more subdivisions, but those are how I think about those four. Um, and take the assessments yourself and have an individual debrief. But what I encourage uh, teams, whether it's a sibling team, a family team, or a management team to do, is, is allow the assessment provider to have permission to share those assessments. And, and I create what I call a composite, which is simply just putting together the assessment data. We would have an activity where we explain what the data says, but so everyone understands what the data is there and then it's referenceable throughout the entire engagement. In fact, post-engagement, you as a management team or a sibling team can keep referring back to that. So, and my sister does, we've, we've done these assessments. So my sister will sometimes talk about, you know, how, how my, lack of desire for inclusion is showing up and how it's impacting her. So you get to hold one another accountable uh, for the behavior. So no, it's not a one time you take the assessment. It's not a one time where you label yourself. I don't know if and you probably everyone does know someone who's talked about their DISC style or their Myers-Briggs, the MBTI style and say, I'm an X. So this means X. That That's only half of the equation, understanding your style to help other people communicate with you, but then you have a responsibility to help uh, communicate with other people and also maybe mitigate some of the behaviors that might be impacting people. So the way I think of data, it's, it's, um, it is a story, but it's, it's living and it's referenceable. So when you said, can leadership be learned? The short answer is yes question is, are people willing to learn leadership? Are they willing to do that change that's consistent and practiced? And if you are, assessments are a great way to get there. It gets there a lot faster. It's also a lot easier than to say, and maybe I could have said this before I took the data, oh, my sister just complains. My sister's very sensitive. Well, now we don't know that. We know how I show up and I get to get to that work a lot quicker. Yeah. And Again, it's probably worth pointing out that the assessments that we're going to be talking about and that you use, are they're not just kind of five multiple choice questions in, in the sense that they try to very quickly pigeonhole you into a particular sex or colour or description, that they are researched and academically backed. 
Agreed. That's a great distinction, Russ. I, I really encourage, and, and I'm often assessment agnostic. I, I don't care if you want to take, um, so for example, predictive assessments. I'll just use an example of two I know that work. You don't have to take the Chally, which I use, which is a predictive assessment. You can take the Cole, which I know a lot of other advisors do. It isn't that you must use the assessment that, that I like. What I believe is important, though, is you get assessments that are accurate, valid, and psychometrically valid. Uh, by quite a few years of research study, most assessment companies, are, are you're able to find it online. If not, the person you're looking for who's a, an affiliate of that or a vendor of that can talk about that. And they should be trained in that assessment as well. All the assessments that I'm trained in, you know, I went to at least a three-day workshop plus had a practicum on that. It's, it's really um, has to be data that's valid or it's just as useful as or not as useful as me saying my sister is sensitive. Yeah. And again, the training is important, isn't it? Because if you um, let's take a, a doctor analogy, if, if you can Google someone's symptoms and someone comes in to says, I've got these symptoms, you have to have the practical experience of using those tools before you can prescribe any kind of solution, because otherwise you you're, you're just taking the data and making your own interpretation. Absolutely. And especially in family businesses, as we know, it's it's a very unique system. So what I would encourage people to do is, is find <clears throat> an assessment vendor or a, a family business consultant that knows family businesses, because I'll give an example. We'll talk about succession as well. Um, so that Chally, the predictive assessment of Chally, and there are a couple things it, it, it works with, but sometimes they actually have a profile for a an executive. So all things equal, and I ran the Chally on on two two people vying for that position, one a family member and one a non-family member. If I'm just a normal management consultant and I rely on the data exclusively, and, and to be fair, uh, assessment data, like any other data, it should just be one data point. It should be at least one of three. There are interviews, there's fit, there's a bunch of other information. But let's say I'm a management consultant who doesn't know family business and I really over-rely on data. That's the most important thing to me. Well, that young woman who's the non-family member has better scores. I might suggest that you go that way. And I don't understand the family dynamic. So yes, assessments are important, but it's not to to over, to go against also understanding the family business uh, system. Really trying to use two together is helpful. And so you've mentioned the FIRO B, which is the, the fundamental interpersonal relationship orientation and behavior um, assessment. Uh, I'm glad I've got that written down because I wouldn't have been able to remember that um, otherwise. Um, and that, that's based upon those three dimensions. You've also mentioned the Myers-Briggs, which I think is, for me, is the one that I'm most um, aware of in terms of the, the name. Um, can you explain a little bit more about what the Myers-Briggs tells us? Sure. The Myers-Briggs is, is a, a four-model uh, styled assessment, and it really talks about why people are interested in different things, how they work sometimes, and, and how they communicate it. It understands, it helps to understand why we're not always saying the same thing, but it describes behaviors. Um, so when you take a Myers-Briggs or the DISC, which is very uh, similar in that four-block model sort of way, 
you know, I often tell people to take it home to their spouse and, and tell them about it. And their spouse say, I could have saved you, you know, 50 bucks. <laughs> I could have told you about this. Um, it's observable and it comes up in work style behaviors. So for teams, starting with a disc or Myers-Briggs is really helpful because you get to talk about behaviors neutrally. Um, and so, for example, in, in the Myers-Briggs, one of the the facets is is introverted and you say how do you know what an extrovert's thinking they'll tell you how do you know what an introvert introvert's thinking you have to ask them so for a sibling group to know that one of your family members shows up as an introvert people might make meaning of how that person shows up so a lot of times in family meetings or a family council when someone's not talking we think disengaged we think not prepared and now if we know he or she is an introvert we know to ask them and we can also, you know, challenge them to show up by, by bringing their thoughts to the table because this is how we participate when we're here. So the Myers-Briggs and the DISC profile are very good at describing observable behaviors that get into work styles and communication. And again, it's things like that might be taken for granted in a, in a family situation if relationships between siblings have been built up over their entire life and they come to a family council or, or family meeting and I don't know, John or Susan are, are, are sat there and they're being their normal quiet self. It, it can feel as if they're not engaged and they're not contributing, whereas actually it's, it's understanding why they're sat there like that rather than, you know, just thinking, oh, it's just him or her being her, him or her usual self. Absolutely. And, and it's okay that it's, it's their usual self. The problem is we don't ask. You're, you're completely right that we grow up in the world thinking things about people um, and we make meaning. And the quickest way to make meaning is something we've seen in the past. And I mean the very early past. And so, for example, I'll use my sister and I, uh, there's a 13 year age gap from us. So when she was, uh, when I was five, she was 18. So she probably was showing me something very interesting, but I was five. Um, and her recollection of me as a young kid was not interested in anything, uh, which probably is true. Not many eight-year-olds are interested in art, um, at least the kind of art that people in their 20s are interested in. The difference We've grown up. So my not wanting to go to things isn't a lack of interest, but, but she doesn't know that. And I don't know that. Um, so it's really to help get rid of the meaning we've made to things. I say in families, we're caricatures. You've ever gone to the beach somewhere and there's somebody drawing that caricature of you. And we all think it's really fun and really interesting because they'll take one, one tiny facet of how we look and exaggerate that. And, and we all can kind of see it, but we know it's a farce and we laugh. Uh, it's kind of the, the more unhappy version of that is what happens in families, is we take a small characteristic of our families and instead of making something fun, uh, we make meaning out of it. And, and more times than not, that meaning is not a positive meaning, uh, just by the way that our, that our brain works and our experiences. Hmm. And I think as well, if we we won't delve too deep into, into this side of things, but when we look at things like mental maps as well, where how people have got to where they are today, their experiences have created that map in their mind and their siblings, although they might have had very similar childhoods, could potentially have an entirely different mental um, image or mental map of how they've got to where they are today and there's an assumption that because they've had similar upbringings that they will have similar views on the world or similar character traits and that's very often not not the case at all 
In my experience, it, it is very rarely the case. Um, you'll see some trend and pattern data, and that's actually where, where families get caught up with each other. So for example, um, some, some families have high urgency, so they're all running in the same direction quickly, not always uh, with the best behavior. And there'll be one person who isn't, who's, who's the rudder of the family. But instead of being the rudder of the family, instead of it being interpreted as, as judicious decision-making, uh, what they'll talk about is, is him being the, the wet rag, the person who stops the momentum. But for most cases, you actually don't see full sale profiles being the same. We actually do all have a unique experience that shows up in our data. Yeah, and that can be the um, potential for conflict or um, challenges at that point if there's just an assumption. Of course, I think the same way as I will because we're from the same family, we have the same values. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's Myers-Briggs. Um, you've mentioned also the, the Chally test, is that, am mm -hmm. I saying that right? Yes. Uh, what what um, fascinates me about this one is it, it it's a predictive assessment. So it predicts the strengths and weaknesses. How does it do that? <laughs> um, with psychometrics, I'm not a psychometrician, but it was originally uh, created by actuarial data. I believe in the 60s or, or 70s, it's one of the earliest um, assessments to, to help create the, the police force, actually to understand who would be a good police officer. It's changed since then. A lot of times they talk about uh, they do sales data. Uh, but what they have is a large profile base now of executives and different descriptions where they map you against that. There, there are several different reports you can get um, through the, the Chali. Um, one is the motivators analysis profile, and this is really motivators. And these are categories of, you know, whether you have influence motivators, task motivators, or, or relationship motivators, and that's if you're demotivated or motivated by things and whether it's situational or not. Um, and that's really helpful for understanding, you know, culture fit and long-term fit. There's also a report that they have called the Predictive Strengths Index, and that's really 10 things that you blow the top off when you wake up in the morning. Just being yourself, you're, you're amazing at these things. So when you talk about you know, going to people's strengths, we have them mapped there. And then they have certain different valid profiles for, for being executives, for being owners, and, and you name that profile and they really help you or, or your vendor who, who does that work can help you find the right profile for the actual job that you're doing. They can even help come up with interview questions and things like that uh, to show you based on other profiles like this and the data set that they have, what what will show up and that's the other one that i mentioned that early on that i said some things just won't be your strength um, and that's okay just knowing the workarounds and the watchouts. Mm -hmm. and i get you touched on it again in in um that section with the the importance of motivation it's something we mentioned at the outset as well it is if for example you, you um have a strong motivation to become a leader or to help um, develop or grow the, the business, that can stand you in a very good stead, even in the absence of some other core skills that can be taught and learned. Um, it's having the motivation to take those on that's the important element. Absolutely. Um, I think it's the motivation that's important. And as from you know, emotional intelligence research, they talk about self-awareness, 
self-management, relationship awareness, empathy, motivation. And motivation is the, is the biggest thing for making change. Um, and that, that includes neuroplastic change. That means real change. So, you know, if you have, let's say there are five core strengths to be an executive in this team and you have, you know, four of them middling or great, but that motivation is really going to help you to close the gap on some of the others. Yeah. And you, you, um, you kindly sent over some um, notes prior to the um, chat we're having now around each of these uh, assessments, which is why I could read out the Fire OB full name. Um, that's not from memory at all. Uh, but under the challenge, you've, you've mentioned that the, um, the assessment is invaluable to succession planning challenges for any family business. Um, in what way is that? Is it such a strength of this assessment? Well, it's a predictive assessment, and, and so why it's predictive is, is that it, it shows that runway, and those motivators are really helpful because those motivators speak to, to fit in culture, and I think family businesses, more than any other industry, yes, all industries have culture, but there's a family culture that really perpetuates these businesses going forward, and, and knowing what will be helpful there one who can do the job and two who can be successful in that culture i can't tell you how many times i've run this assessment and and it looked like a, a candidate might not stay long or it might not make them happy and and it did happen that they 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 went somewhere else and that's okay you you want the right people in the position for them that's exactly what these people should be doing so i would say i use this in in most cases around selection um, and family businesses. And do you have any stories or examples where perhaps the results of the assessment are counter to what the family had perhaps expected? Well, in my experience, um, a lot of these families hadn't really thought of assessments. So what they had had was, was some idea, but I, I run into parents that say their children aren't ready. And, and they mean that wholesale. You know, you have four kids and, and you think all four are not ready. You have an inkling that one or two might be more ready than the other, um, but, but they're not even at that process. So I think sometimes my clients uh, are just in agreement of one thing, and that is that their family's not ready. Uh, what I've seen this assessment do is actually talk to those children because I think a lot of, uh, and I say children loosely, sometimes they're in their 50s, they're just the adult children of the family. Um, really want to, to go to the asset, the asset of, of our family, because we call family businesses, it's where the time is, it's where the money is, and it has its own gravitational pull. So what I've seen this assessment do is when you do a debrief with one of these young people, at first they're still saying, yes, I, I do want to be in the family business, but the more they get to know their data, they feel the freedom to make a different choice, and that choice might not be as successor. It's probably still involved in the asset, uh, but it's not actually as the successor. So what I've seen this do is diffuse conflict. You have four kids and all four say, I want to be the successor. And by the time the data is done and the work around this is and trust with families increases, you often have one person self-selecting to do this. And it is someone that is capable and competent. And so that's been really helpful. I, I can't say I've ever had a parent, you know, really look at the data and say, no, not at all. Um, often what I hear from, from clients with this 
assessment specifically is that you know we must have a crystal ball somewhere in the in the background uh, because it's it's highly valid and sometimes this one with like the MBTI or the disc people say yeah it's valid and I I kind of knew most of that and I learned some new information with this you know people sit back and they say huh you know if I really think about this. I actually see that. And sometimes they'll even say, you know, I don't see this yet. But then, you know, a month later, they, they email me and they say, you know what, that thing I was fighting you about, it showed up in this way. Yeah. And you, you can't tell, I guess, whether that is a direct result of the um, assessment or whether it's awareness of what was in the assessment, if that makes sense. So it may have shown up anyway, but the fact that it's been highlighted in the assessment means people are more likely to notice it. Absolutely. And similarly, do you come across examples where, so you go through this um, process using um, whichever assessment is, is right for that family, and the outcome of that is that actually there isn't anybody in the next generation who is suitable for the succession or the, the next leadership role? That happens, and a lot for me it's timing. A lot of the time, uh, you know, the next generation is very young. And they also might be transitioning into what they're doing. A lot of families now are having a, a succession where their legacy is entrepreneurship. It's not just this anchor, anchor family business anymore. And in that case, there's a lot of flexibility to find out what, what each young person wants to do as an entrepreneur. Uh, but sometimes we can still use these assessments to help create uh, effective governance structures. I'm seeing more and more that, you know, you have larger family companies that have a lot of professional outside management, and that'll work in the future if, if no one's interested, at least in this generation, or they've aged out, uh, where they're ready to retire now. So we help find, using these same assessments, the right fit for the non-family executive, and then formulate, you know, fiduciary boards of advisors that that have the right skill set and the right family members on this, as well as a mix of outside executives to, to be the oversight so that the family's influence is still uh, a part of that family entity. And I guess, again, um, I come back to this point a couple of times now, but it, using that kind of data and those kind of assessments can really help diffuse some of the potential tensions that might exist within the family in, in that the, if they don't know that. So if, if they're in a position where maybe the next generation are, I don't know, five, 10 years away from being in a position to fully take on that leadership, but that doesn't tie in with that succession plan timetable. Bringing in somebody on the, um, in the interim could potentially remove any of that um, frustration and, and perhaps avoid future conflict. Yeah, I think it really helps normalize the experience. It mm. makes perfect sense that you're not going to be the executive at 25 yet. Um, we're going to find out who can do that. And, and then we make it about the job and not the person. We really find the right job description, help match that to the family. Like I said, you set up the interviews and then you put a person in that role. So it's not about that person. It's not like mom or dad picked, you know, Joe, who's been working by their side for the last 30 years because he's a great guy. We have scoped out a job description that's rational. It's predictable. There's a process for that. And we put the absolute best person we could find in that position. 
And that's what our family has a, a tradition of doing, finding the absolute best qualified manager uh, for these positions to help steward the asset that we're all beneficiaries of as owners or, you know, as a, a family council, et cetera. Yeah. And we had a example of this on, on a previous show. We spoke to a chap called Mark Bergman, who had bought in a, I can't remember the exact title, I think a president of the business who his son actually then reported into um, because it was felt at the time that the son wasn't ready to, to take on that position and it was something that had really helped their business to thrive in the interim years between Mark's now looking to step out and, and his son will be able to step into the business but in the interim period there was no other real feasible solution than to bring somebody in externally to help fill that gap. Yeah and and the great thing about the assessments and the creation of a process is it's not personal and then when you create this process multi-generationally or intergenerationally everyone wants the best person you, you know you understand what the assets doing you understand what the roles are and so again it's not something being done to the next generation it's something everyone's doing together uh, yeah family i think that's that's really important to to highlight as well um so so that's three we've spoken about so the, there's also um the caliper profile uh, which is a personality assessment. Again, you, you, you mentioned earlier about people not wanting to, to fail. This is probably the one you don't want to fail the most, isn't it? A personality <laughs> test. Yes. It comes back blank or just a big question mark. It's, um, it's a bit demoralizing. Yeah, so the caliper profile really just describes um, who you are on, on a bunch of uh, different metrics. And so when I gave the example of, of the high urgency you know, family, urgency is one of those facets that's there and it just describes how you show up i kind of think of this as a motherboard and so it's possible you won't see all of these all the time but those days that you're sick or stressed those things will show up um so for example my clients i'll always pick on myself um might not tell you that i'm a high urgency person they would say i'm very kind and, and calm and patient and i talk about the process but on those days when i'm not well my urgency shows up and, and i want things done um, and it's not to say that those are bad things but most of us in our adult lives have adjusted some amount to do what's expected of us so the caliper profile says this is how ideally you know, no stress, no strings attached, we would operate. And it's really helpful uh, for family members because we see each other's best and worst. And it's really helpful in, in family business working environments uh, because being in business can be stressful. So these behaviors that someone might say is uncharacteristic, so that someone might say, that's so weird that Natalie's pushing me today because she's usually, you know, so calm. Well, that is how I show up. It doesn't mean I can't you know, be coached to that and mitigate to that. But that, again, makes it not personal. It means that, you know, Natalie's not having a meltdown. Natalie shows up this way. And, and so that's really useful for families like this because under stress, we will show up in these ways. Yeah. And I guess with you as a, as a practitioner as well, understanding your own character traits helps you in those situations. So like you were just saying about um, you, you can be coached around some of the, um, urgency uh, side of things that come out on this particular test. So is this something you think would be useful or beneficial to 
anyone, irrespective of, I mean, we have listeners who are in family businesses, but we also have listeners who aren't, who are in um, advising family businesses. Would it be something you would always suggest they undertake themselves, even if they're not looking at perhaps a succession issue or aren't working in a family business at all? Absolutely. I mean, doing self-work, especially as a practitioner who helps families, uh, because it's an emotional system, we can get triangulated into that system. Um, we can have transference happen. We can get triggered because we're all from families, right? There's no one who hasn't come from a family. Um, and I, I say that as an advisor, this has helped me immensely. It has helped me uh, be a better advisor. And, and, and I believe in it because I've done this work. I've seen the power of this work and it makes it more compelling for my clients. Um, and it's just easier. I mean, you, you can't go online nowadays. This is, this is not exactly the same, but, but not hearing about emotional intelligence to not hear about, you know, conversational intelligence, these ways we are genuinely and, 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 generally impacting each other uh, neurobiologically on a daily basis. And so to not take the chance at this, especially at this point in life where we see the data and we understand the science behind it, to do tangible work on ourselves, we're really doing a disservice to our clients um, if we haven't done that personal work. I agree. And um, that was one of the things you mentioned the chat I had with um, Steve Legler around the Boeing um, family systems theory. And um, I, I came off of the call with him and, and immediately got on the phone to, to my parents and said, right, I'm coming around. I need to talk to you about some stuff. I need to kind of delve back into uh, sort of the family history. Um, and it was very useful. It was, it was a, a very useful exercise. So work, working on yourself and understanding your motivations, like you were saying, when you're advising family businesses, it's not being triggered by or, or recognising when you might be triggered by events that could be happening that have also happened in your life. Uh, it's important to be aware of those. Yeah, and families, they, they play games. We, we all do. And some of those games are scapegoating or, or triangulating or drama triangles or, you know, maybe, and I don't mean this in a, in a malintent way, but manipulating. We, we change the story to, to our favor. And if there's that data, this assessment data, we can catch some of that gaming. But if we're doing our own work, um, we can catch ourselves being game so it's really really helpful to have objectivity and part of our own objectivity is are not being activated so if we don't have data that's objective and we can't keep ourselves objective i'm not sure the client then gets objectivity mm. yeah i agree and you've mentioned about the awareness of emotional intelligence and how much more um noise i guess there is around um emotional intelligence as something that we can potentially measure and assess. And there's a test here, well, sorry, an assessment, not test. Um, it's called the, the EQ in Action um, Profile, which looks at neurophysiology theory and, and research and tries to uh, tap into that emotional intelligence aspect, which is something I think is, I'm quite looking forward to the, to the continued development of emotional intelligence and the research in that field. Yeah, and this and this isn't one I always start with. I like to have that information, but but one of the things we look for um, and why I use this emotional intelligence um, assessment specifically is emotional intelligence is really rooted in attachment theory. And when you think of a adult developmental attachment, it starts in the years zero to four, so like four um, and zero when you're born, and 
And what we do in those ages when we're pre-verbal is, is we make sense of the world, but thinking about, think about that. We're making sense of the world when we don't even have language to make sense of the world, when we're probably not even understanding language. Um, and that carries with us till we're adults till today. Um, and so this emotional intelligence uh, assessment really asks if that's working. There are some behaviors that we have in relation to emotions that we set up when we were four, when we weren't quite capable of being safe um, and taking care of ourselves. You've probably heard about psychological safety. Um, safety is a big motivator. It's also why emotional reactivity happens. We, we try to make ourselves safe. So the learning in action, it's called the Emotional Intelligence in Action Profile. Uh, and it's one of the reports that I really like and it's an assessment, not a test, but why I love it is uh, you get videos. They're actually uncomfortable to watch. I felt they were uncomfortable. They're videos of someone very close face to you, talking to you as though you fired them or you gossiped about them or, or you name the different vignettes. Um, and it asks you your internal experience of this. So rather than a sheet that's a self-report of how you probably would um, respond in these situations, it, it's supposed to be activating your mirror neurons. Those are the neurons. There are lots of them, but they're about a, over a hundred around just your eyes when you're watching the other people's eyes to say, this is how you behave under stress. Um, so it's your own self-reflection, your own self-regulation, and, and it talks about that empathy as well. And so I think of emotional intelligence as what's under the hood. Um, so for example, uh, again, I'll pick on myself, uh, my uh, emotional empathy, my empathy accuracy is very, very low. I've probably worked on it years now since I started, but my emotion, empathy compassion is very high. So thinking back to my sister, again, of course I want to get coffee with my sister. Of course I want to be on your podcast, Russ. I, I really care about people. I'm all about the doing. Um, but then my sister stops asking me after a while and I don't quite understand why my empathy accuracy uh, was lower. So what was under the hood for me when I had trouble connecting with people or following through on some of the actions is I actually didn't understand it. Um, so imagine trying to make change when you don't understand the behaviors you're seeing. Uh, so that's how I think of the emotional intelligence assessment. I can talk to you behaviorally about thinking about authoritative parents, right? We know there are entrepreneurial profiles of, of entrepreneurs that look a certain way, act a certain way, and a lot of people would say they're authoritative, they're brash, they're this, that, and the other, but that has worked for them, and there's probably a reason they've been doing that. So if you can address what that reason is, it makes it a whole heck of a lot easier to change. Instead of keep saying, you know, and, and we don't say this, but I'm going to make it really reductivist, bad behavior, you know, bad entrepreneurial owner, stop doing that. But why is he or she doing it? And this gets to that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds incredible. I'm, I'm uh, intrigued myself um, on that side, particularly in terms of watching the video. Um, as you mentioned, that uh, can be um, can be quite uh, an experience, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, we can't talk about um, family business and not mention the potential for conflict. And one of the assessments you've listed is a, it's called the Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument, um, which is, uh, is again quite a mouthful. But it, 
it helps as an assessment to understand how conflict handling styles can affect groups and individuals. Um, perhaps you could just kind of uh, help us understand what, how or why that would be useful. Absolutely, and this is one I always encourage families to do, especially sibling groups or team groups, because yes, it says the word conflict um, and, and conflict exists, but what I think of it too is a decision-making uh, instrument. A lot of people really fear conflict. We say, you know, we don't fight. And, and I always wonder what they do instead of fighting. Um, not that I'm saying you <laughs> could fight. Uh, there's third alternatives that I was talking about where you have G1 maybe and G2, you know, being diametrically opposed. What can come out of that is this wonderful third thing that if everyone agreed, you wouldn't see. Um, so the Thomas Kilman conflict instrument is really helpful in that it talks about uh, different styles of, of conflicting, and we all use them at different times. So it's not that, you know, my one sibling uses one and I use the other. It's how much we use them and around what. And it's on a scale of assertiveness, how assertive or not assertive we are around conflict and cooperativeness, how, how cooperative or not cooperative we are. Um, so I'll just kind of list the, the, the styles and you've probably heard of many of them and you probably have feelings or thoughts about what each one is, but they're, they're quite instructive. So, so for example, competing is a conflict style and you might think that's the person who always wins. Sure, maybe, uh, but that's at least the person who's going to keep talking about their opinion on it. So you can have a discussion about what's going on before it gets you know, pushed under the rug or you will address it so that it doesn't get dropped. So there, there's a pro and a con to each one of these styles. And I really think of it as whether it's use or overuse. And then there's collaborating. This one takes the most time because that's coming together to kind of create something new, making sure everyone's heard a voice, but it's not compromising because compromising is often a lose lose, even though people say it's win-win, you're giving something up. Collaborating is more a win-win-win. That's that third alternative. You create something new so no one's uh, put in there. But it does. It takes the most time. And it's not something that's easy to do without high trust. So yes, we often say in families, we should collaborate to make decisions if it's attainable. Um, so when I think of this conflict model, I think of it as a decision-making model. And then there's compromising, and that is I give up something, you give up something, and we've at least all heard each other, right? We've had a voice, but we're not moving forward. And again, that makes a lot of sense in families. That often can become when we take a vote, although ideally we're not voting about things, that sends probably uh, not the best message for what's going to continue. Um, and that's kind of right in the middle of being cooperative and assertive. And then there's avoiding. Those are the, that's the families who say we don't fight right? Because it just doesn't come up. We, we don't have difference of opinions very long. Um, and that's really good for some reasons too. So think about, you know, so let's say my sister and I are fighting over the fact that I, I blew her off for coffee or I didn't, I didn't set up a time to go for coffee. I don't actually blow her off. I just never follow up. Uh, but, but we have, you know, the U.S. Thanksgiving coming up and we're going to be there for our family. It makes a whole heck of a lot of sense that my sister maybe doesn't confront me at Thanksgiving about this uh, so that the greater of my family can have an enjoyable time. It doesn't mean we won't get back to it, but so there is a use for avoiding. And then there's accommodating, which is uh, I'll do what you would like because it's easier for me. 
to, to just let you have it. And again, there's a use for that because sometimes you don't have a strong opinion about this. Um, but if you were always accommodating, you know, you guys aren't really going to come to to a new position where some people might feel resentful. Um, so yes, it's called the conflict model. And yes, this is how conflict happens. Uh, but I think of it as a decision-making model um, because decisions often won't get made without spending some time in, in one or all five of these. And it's helpful to know that we might have a different way of being around these things. So for example, I'm a high collaborator and that's fun for you and I, Russ, to, to do this um, to do this podcast, it's not fun for everyone I've ever worked with in my families because they're like, can you just tell me what to do? Um, so it's really just understanding our, our way of behavior and, and, and what we have at our disposal. Because sometimes there is a point where it should just be competing. We just need to expeditiously make this decision. And it's not meaningful because if they're useful, then we can use them. It's just understanding it first. Mm. Brilliant. And one of the things you've mentioned a couple of times throughout the, the chat today um, has been um, having a mentor or the role of a mentor. Uh, and in terms of if somebody's gone through one or more of these assessments and has spotted areas of which they can now understand and perhaps adapt their behavior uh, as a result of, do you think it's important to have a mentor to help with that is it something that can be self-governed or is it something that needs to be continually assessed um, what i would say when you first do assessments like this to make them actionable to keep refer referencing back to them uh, to make them living i'd encourage a coach um, that's your accountability partner that's the person who can who can help you do this for yourself. There are great roles for mentors and I think there should be in family business um, and, and they would probably be the next step, but mentors help to show their own personal knowledge and their own way of being and their own rep, their own success with this. And there's, there's a wonderful place for that. But I think at first on this journey of self-awareness and, and working on your own scores, it needs to be your work. And coaches are very helpful at keeping those boundaries and, and making that your work, not not getting in your bag and, and trying to make it about them. And, and mentors don't make it about them either, but they have been successful. And part of their job is to share that success with you. Um, I think you could do both. I am a big fan of having more resources than not. So having a mentor and having a coach. But I definitely say, if nothing else, start with a coach. Start with a coach. Brilliant. Um, and the final assessment we're going to sort of briefly um, chat about is the Energy Leadership Index. Um, and I will just point out in the show notes, I will put in links to um, these assessments. Um, but I think it's also worth pointing out that, that you might not necessarily be able to just go straight on and, and do some of these. There are um, uh, some of them you need to pay for, I think, and some of them need to be done through a, a qualified facilitator. Um, but if we can link those up in the, the show notes, we will certainly do so. Um, but this one is the um, Energy Leadership Index, and it provides insights into how you show up in various aspects of your life. What, what do you mean by that? Um, so in, in this, they talk about awareness. And so this energy leadership model, it's about um, attitudes. And they talk about seven attitudes of how you show up 
Um, and, and either way, it's energy, but there's depleting or or edifying energy. And so um, a couple of the levels are more depleting energy and that's sometimes where we have an orientation that things are happening to us uh, versus that we can do other things. And so for example, one of the levels is an energy level four and that's kind of a helping lens. And that can be really additive and edifying. But if I'm trying to help you so much that I cross my boundaries, it, it can have a, a negative impact on me. So the great thing about this assessment is it shows how you show up on the day to day. So your best self, your great day, uh, how you show up, and then it shows your stress response. And most of us under stress dip into those lower energy levels that really deplete us, which makes sense. But um, think about when you're already under stress, you're already taxed, and then you dip into these lower levels of energy when you have access to higher levels of energy. So again, it's really being cognizant and being aware and trying to, to spend more time in those areas that really <clears throat> enhance how you're thinking about things. Um, and take the information that's needed from those areas. So if you're in an area where you feel like something's being done to you, level one, what is going on there? that either can change with the situation or change how you view that situation uh, because sometimes that's just information maybe you need to not be in this job or in this relationship if you're constantly feeling that things are being done to you and you feel like you might have a victim mentality to it uh, but this is this is about attitudes versus behaviors although it can show up behaviorally so when you do a debrief like this when you talk to people about it, they actually say, yeah, and I do X, Y, and Z, um, but, but attitudes aren't always displayed in behavior. Right, and so we, we've discussed seven um, different assessments, and as you mentioned, there are others uh, that are out there. Uh, and uh, what we're not suggesting in this episode that everybody go away and do every single possible assessment out there to, to understand what it is that's making them tick. Um, but, but is there a process that you go through? Is it dependent on each individual family or each individual family member, the kind of stage they are in the, the business cycle? or What helps you to decide which assessments would be useful at each stage? Again, it depends on what the family or the individual is doing. You know, if you say to me, you're you're looking for leadership and you're having some challenges at work, I'll, I'll probably go to the caliper and the chalet pretty quickly um, and, and probably the MBTI to show up how you're showing up at work. If you're telling me you want to create a sibling team that, that you know, hasn't been high functioning, though that FIRO B um, is going to be really important. Uh, so is that Thomas Kilman and, and the Myers-Briggs or the DISC, because, again, it's those behaviors. Um, and then if I'm going to do some long-term work with you and coach you on making some changes, I'm going to want to do the EQ and the ELI. And why I would want to do those with you is what's under the hood is the EQ. And the ELI is your attitudes. And your attitudes are shaping those behaviors. So really getting at the source uh, versus the symptoms are helpful. Uh, there's no one size fits all. And like I said, these are just the ones I'm certified in, but I could give you a list just as long for other complementary assessments, but it's all about what you're doing. Um, and I think assessments and coaching help people make actionable change. Um, and so if you're looking to make, raise your awareness to, to try to make some actionable change, uh, you know, it's a great place to start. And if somebody's listening to this and they're in, say they're the next generation and they're frustrated with 
mum or dad in, in the business and they've they've listened to the show and they've gone, oh, I think dad might be displaying that character trait. It's important to, to point out as well that these tests shouldn't be used to try and highlight issues for other people. It's as a family, it's collectively, it's coming up with some, as you say, some data and some reasoning behind why certain things might be happening rather than to point the finger at mum or dad and go, see, I told you it was you. The, the test shows us that it, it's you because it's a combination of relationships, isn't it? Absolutely, Russ. And that's why when I talked about it at the beginning, we do an individual debrief with everyone and we and we get permission to share it with the group. And sometimes we don't do that for a while because we realize that trust isn't there. You don't want to weaponize assessments. I've, I've kind of made lighthearted about uh, something between my sister and I that someone else may say is not that big of a deal. But it, but it was meaningful in our relationship for a while. And assessments are to raise our awareness. And, and because there's no failing of assessments, there's no 100% either. Uh, so, you know, let your family members off the hook. They, they really aren't trying to make you miserable. I said that once recently, and I had a couple people in the room say, well, you haven't met my family yet. Uh, but what I do know about doing this work in families for so long is it's good intentions. And, and everyone who says that, you know, cliche about the road paved with good intentions. But the problem is there's often not a road. There's not a pathway for what's happening next. So all you're getting is behaviors and what looks like random chaos. Trust me, your parents or your uncles or your siblings aren't creating chaos for you. You just haven't created a pathway. So everything feels like a ping pong ball. Um, and so in creating this pathway, you then get to decide and design whether that's acceptable behavior or not. And so for my sister and I, it is not acceptable behavior for me to say, yes, I will do that and not follow up. Um, so I would say, let everyone off the hook. That doesn't mean that you can't be upset by behavior, but your parents, your uncles, whoever that previous generation are, have been enormously successful and it has worked for them. The question is in their transition, which might be in, in rising, raising the next generation, are those same behaviors successful? And, and, and they probably aren't. Uh, but we only know what we know. There are things that you also aren't doing that haven't made you successful, uh, and you just don't know it yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, the useful element of the assessments is that they um, can, as we've mentioned throughout, help to diffuse things rather than to um, point the finger and, and blame an individual, um, which is always um, quite useful in, in uh, when dealing with families is to, to try and diffuse the situation rather than necessarily say it's all your fault. Mm-hmm, yeah. So obviously you, th those are the assessments that you are um, qualified and, and uh, able to work with. And uh, you may already have answered this. In fact, I think you have. But if somebody is looking at it thinking, right, we, we need to understand why we're doing the things we're doing, what would be their starting point? Is there a, a particular assessment you think that's a, their starting point? Or would you say engage with a, um, a, a trained professional who, who can then help you make those decisions rather than go out and get an assessment and, and think it's, you know, know what the answers are? I would engage with a, a trained professional. Um, so a lot of the assessments I mentioned, there are many more I've tested over the years. And, and it's not that they weren't valid or good assessments. They just didn't complement each other as well for family-owned businesses, for succession, for 
we're creating governance bodies. Um, so one, as you mentioned earlier, some of these, if you go to a link, you, you can't take on your own. A few of them you can, uh, but two, you're not doing assessments in a vacuum. And if you are, they're, they're not going to do much for you. So, so find your family business consultant or a coach, uh, because coaches often work with organizations who, who have some assessments and ask them about how they use the assessments, why, and, and what would be helpful for the family. And not every family business advisor uses assessments, and I don't think you have to. You can get to some of the same work because you're really trying to get what's underneath the behavior. So some of this you can do uh, by experiential learning, by workshops together. Uh, for me, I find assessments really uh, fast. And they're also easy when you said diffuse uh, situations, Russ, if there's a lot of tension, if there isn't a lot of trust, you know, you can just put some of this stuff on the paper and start addressing it directly today. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, again, just a, a uh, question on, and this isn't questioning the validity of them, but the, you can't cheat your way through these assessments. Or, or if you do, you it's like golf, you're only cheating yourself. Correct. Um, these are all supposed to be highly valid and accurate. Um, and to my knowledge, you can't cheat your way through, but also why would you? Um, at the end of the day, the only person who gets cheated is you. Um, none of these, because it is just one data point, even if you took every assessment I mentioned today and didn't mention today, there is no magic successor button, if that's the goal. Um, you know, it's, it's about fit, it's about a lot of other things, as valid as data is, you don't want to give data too much credence either. Um, so it's really about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And just to um, sort of close the episode off in, in terms of uh, a couple of quick fire um, questions, if you could offer family businesses a single tip, what would it be? Um, stick with the facts and try not to make meaning because um, there's going to be a long road of undoing the meaning you've made. If you have a question, just ask. Uh-huh. Fantastic. And how can our audience find out more about you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I think my handle, I think is that the word? It's Natalie McVeigh. Um, and then I'm on Twitter as well. N M as in Mary, M as in Mary, uh, underscore 10. And then if you're ever taking Gen 501 for the FFI, I might be your faculty. Uh, I'm, I, I believe I might be. Excellent. Um, I think uh, I've seen that in the, in my um, calendar is the um, you're you're facilitating my five hundred one. So I look forward to speaking to you again then. Excellent. Now we can collaborate more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, thank you very much for your time. That's been a, a fascinating insight into um, some of the assessments that are out there, and not only that, uh, a fascinating insight into assessments in general and the, the potential uses of those for both practitioners and for um, families. So um, thank you for your time and uh, we'll speak again soon. Thank you, Russ. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fambizpodcast.com. We'll see you again soon.